There has been a lot of confusing and sometimes conflicting news about the progress being made by pharmaceutical companies in the war on coronavirus. Some of it exciting. This is probably the biggest step forward in the treatment of coronavirus since the crisis began. Some of it unbelievable. If the vaccine is successful, AstraZeneca will work to make 30 million doses available by September for the UK. And some of it downright ludicrous. I would like you to speak to the medical doctors to see if there's any way that you can apply light and heat to cure. Our news editor, Harriet Clarfold, has been keeping track of these medical developments. And today we'll be speaking to her about her ultimate guide to the progress being made in the pharma industry in the war on coronavirus. Meanwhile, other illnesses still exist. Harriet has spoken to Nina Decker from Robo Global to understand the healthcare investment opportunities beyond the immediate threat of coronavirus. But scientific progress does not always necessarily translate into profit. Later, we'll be talking to Phil Oakley about why he's buying into the healthcare trend and ways investors can tap into the industry without taking the concentrated risks of clinical development. Well, I'm, you know, of the view that healthcare is going to be something that is very well supported by my demographics. And finally, we'll be joined by Mary McDougall to discuss how investors can use funds to tap into some of the trends that we have been talking about. I'm John Human. And I'm Megan Boxall. Welcome to the Investment Hour. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. Harriet, thanks very much for joining us. So what you've been working on, which is a fantastic resource, is your big super duper table of updates in coronavirus. Tell us about it. Thanks, Megan. So the table aims to highlight the main companies, academic institutions and scientific organisations that are working on potential vaccines for coronavirus as well as those that are trying to repurpose existing treatments to help alleviate its symptoms. Um, It feels like a good time to be talking about this, actually, because there's a virtual vaccine summit happening today in which leaders are going to be urged to raise billions of dollars to distribute vaccines to combat infectious diseases in the poorest countries in the world. But as, as you said, there have been a lot of updates and announcements in the past few weeks about vaccines and medicines, which have sometimes felt quite confusing, so we thought it was a good opportunity. There was a good opportunity to boil down the key players into a simple table, which will keep updated regularly. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing resource because, like you say, there seems to be a lot of there's a lot of news going on, and some of it, some of it's coming from pretty high up people, and it's really hard to understand what they're saying. Like one of the clips we heard at the beginning there was the business sec- secretary Alex Sharma talking about AstraZeneca being able to roll out 30 million vaccines in September. And he did say if the trial is successful, but it wasn't, still wasn't very clear exactly what stage the trial is in. And he was talking about the Oxford University vaccine trial. But yeah, there's a lot of that going on. There seems to be a lot of chat and not that much explanation. So yeah, and that, that's one of the things that we're hoping our table will help with. So there, as you say, a lot of very senior leaders try to summarise um, what's happening in these vaccine trials. Naturally, it is a lot more complicated. There are, generally speaking, three phases to most medical clinical trials. There's phase one, there's phase two, there's, there's phase three. And that's really the point at which a vaccine or a treatment can be rolled out to broader society. Um, this is all happening really fast because we're in the middle of a pandemic, which is making things even more complex. Um, but I think the Oxford vaccine is quite a good example um, 
it's quite it's quite a good sort of route into thinking about this more broadly. So as you said, o- Oxford's working with AstraZeneca. Um, it's Oxford University's Jenner Institute, and their vaccine against coronavirus, which is still in development, has been seen to be quite promising um, because it's based on a technology which they used to develop a vaccine against another type of coronavirus. Um, AstraZeneca has committed to supply 400 million doses of Oxford's vaccine if it proves to be successful. But as you said, we still don't know whether the vaccine will be successful. And it feels a bit like companies, developers of vaccines are having to put the cart before the horse a bit and make sure they have all the capacity there to be able to roll something out if they realise they're onto a winner. Which which is arguably a good thing. I mean, that's an off, often an issue with pharmaceutical investing in the pharmaceutical industry they have this breakthrough they have this medical breakthrough and then it can be several months or years before it actually gets commercialized because they just don't have the the manufacturing in place so to have that in place is a really positive thing for the team at Oxford but yeah like you say it is still in the development phase it's going to be it's not guaranteed that this vaccine is actually going to work and now we're kind of getting to the stage with this outbreak of coronavirus where we're starting to see fewer cases. And those people who've been vaccinated, it's going to be quite hard to test them and see whether or not they actually, that it actually works because coronavirus is dying down in the UK anyway. Absolutely. And th- that's, that's a, a major issue. Vaccine development needs there to be enough active cases of an illness in society in order to be able to expose people to the, to the virus and then check whether the vaccine works. And one of the biggest risks of vaccine development, especially at such unprecedented speeds, is that a vaccine is unleashed on society, which just isn't safe to use, um, which could even produce worse consequences than the virus itself might inspire people. So it's really important that steps aren't skipped, um, but a balance needs to be struck with between trying to tackle this virus now, and obviously we want to get past this pandemic as quickly as possible, um, but also making sure that they don't create a worse problem with a, with a vaccine candidate. The other thing that's really useful about your table is putting the development into context. Obviously, we have seen some massive progress and the, the clip from Matt Hancock that we played at the beginning there, which was, he said, this is probably the biggest step forward in the treatment of coronavirus since the crisis began. He was talking about Gilead's drug, remdesivir. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was a big leap forward when they started getting positive, positive results from that trial. But the reaction of the markets was maybe a little bit over the top. So what your table really has helped with also is putting into context what these developments actually mean. So hopefully investors don't get swept up in the hype. Uh, Absolutely. I think Gilead's a really good example of one of these healthcare companies um, that has really gripped the markets in in recent weeks. And Gilead, there's, there's been good news and there's been bad news and there's been good news. And the market has moved in line with that. Um, And actually, Gilead's drug remdesivir, which was originally designed for use in Ebola patients and has been repurposed for coronavirus patients, um, it has now got emergency use authorization in America and it's being used in the UK as well. But the market's kind of cooled down or investors have cooled down a little bit on Gilead since that news emerged, just because I think we've kind of ultimately realised, yes, it's a a good development, but remdesivir isn't going to be the be all and end all drug to cure coronavirus. You know, there is plenty of other work going on. And, you know, just to give you another couple of examples, um, there's a company working on what it calls an antibody cocktail in America, which is using antibody treatments, um, essentially using proteins in from blood to see whether that can help treat coronavirus. Hydroxychloroquine is obviously one that's been touted by Donald Trump. That's another drug that's out there. 
What is that? That, that, sounds, uh, that sounds alarmingly disinfectant-like. It does, actually, doesn't it? And so hydroxychloroquine is a drug that's currently used against malaria and sometimes against a type of arthritis. Um, but it's an example of how a drug is being, its uses are being changed um, in order to see whether it could be used against coronavirus. It's not bleach. As far as I'm aware, it's not bleach anyway. But um, it's actually attracted quite a lot of attention recently, obviously partly because Donald Trump's been talking about it a lot in the, in the press, um, but also because there were some suggestions that it could be quite bad for people's health to take it. Um, it could, I think there were suggestions that it could affect heart health. But um, I think just this week, the World Health Organization has resumed its trials of hydroxychloroquine, um, having sort of temporarily paused them because of those concerns. So the news, just the, the story around all these drugs changes every day, um, which is symptomatic of it all moving so quickly. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting and good, good to keep on top of it for sure. So thanks very much for putting that table together, Harriet. It's, uh, it's going to be a useful resource going forward. I hope so. So Megan, it sounds like there's lots of companies working, trying to find uh, vaccines and treatments for coronavirus. But I think we've, we've spoken before, perhaps even on this podcast, about the fact that it's going to be, still going to be very difficult for a lot of these companies to make a lot of money uh, out of any vaccine or treatment, even if they find it, um, mm. due to the sort of political pressures around it. You've been exploring perhaps um, better ways to tap into the, uh, the coronavirus treatment side of things. Yeah, I mean, if a company cracks a vaccine they're not going to be able to make money from it. They're going to be giving it away. And if, like Harriet just mentioned, there's a big vaccine conference happening today about getting these medicines out to poorer countries. I mean, they need these vaccines. They need treatments too. And pharmaceutical companies, which which charge um, anything other than cost price for these medicines, they're not going to be very popular. So the actual pharmaceutical companies, while they're interesting and they might help us help bring the bring the world out of the coronavirus problems they're not great from an individual investment point of view but Mm. like you say there are other options because those vaccines those drugs will need packaging they will need distributing they will need marketing and there are lots of options there it's an amazing market the uh the sort of the pharmaceutical outsourcing market and it's a really fast growing market as well because as drugs get more complicated and they're so biotech drugs they're large molecules rather than uh, pharmaceutical products which are chemical small molecules so they the these biological drugs need far more complicated packaging and distribution temperature wise and all sorts of things need to be considered um which is why pharmaceutical and biotech outsourcing has been a really fast-growing market and this could catalyze that market even more because there are going to be loads of opportunities for people wanting to distribute coronavirus options yeah it's, i guess it's like the old picks and shovels argument mm. you know you don't, you don't invest in the, uh, the the oil that's coming out of the ground you invest in the company selling the gear to the uh, to the oil companies to get the stuff out of the ground it's the same sort of principle uh, in the in the pharmaceutical world yeah. what sort of companies are we looking at is it something that that is easy to play in the uk or do we have to broaden our horizons in the uk it's tricky there used to be a company in the uk an amazing company called consort medical and it was bought um it had a few issues and unsurprisingly when its share price collapsed a swedish company immediately came and, and bought it so consort medical what it does is uh, it's the, it is the packaging for things like inhalers and also for for vaccines. So obviously you need an in, you need an injectable device, and so they have these relationships with massive pharmaceutical companies. And the good thing about that company, and I remember talking to the chief executive before it got bought, was that 
what Sunk Consult will do is sign up these partnerships before the drug actually gets made. So if GSK is making a new asthma drug, it will have already been in discussions with Consort Medical to make the device that goes around that inhaler. So that for the duration of that drug being on the shelves, Consort Medical's device will be being used for it. GSK won't terminate that agreement because it's been a purpose-built thing. Most medical device things are purpose-built, so those relationships last forever. So they're extremely sticky customers. Uh, Consort Medical, yeah, you can't invest in it now directly, but the company that bought it is listed in Stockholm. It's called Resi Farm, Recky Farm. You were doing so well with the pronunciations earlier of all the drug names. Um, I mean, it, it, is, it is quite interesting. I guess one of the one of the interesting aspects of this way of playing coronavirus is that there isn't that development risk, or that, or there is a lesser degree of development risk that you may see around drugs. And you, you've actually published some educational materials on the website this week that show that that sort of uh, phase development process of uh, of drugs themselves. That that seems to me like an amazing attraction of of the picks and shovel side of things. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so that was actually an article that was written in 2018, and yeah, it's called it was called Seven Step to Healthy Profits, and it was looking at how to identify opportunities. In it started the original article was written about the small and mid cap space in the UK because there's a lot of drug developers, but really what came out of that article was that yeah, it's best to go for the picks and shovels approach if you want to reduce the risk of investing in this space. And one of the companies that we picked in that feature back then, which remains an extremely exciting company, is Bioventics. And so they make antibodies which go into big diagnostic machines. So it's the same sort of principle as the injectables thing. A diagnostics company will, like Roche or something, will come up with a new new test. And they'll call up Bioventics and they'll say, we need some antibodies to go in our big testing machine and Bioventics will make them. And again, those relationships last forever because Roche, for as long as those diagnostics tests kits are being used for, will continue to need a constant supply of antibodies and Bioventics will just continue to make them. And it's a really amazing company. And I think the attractions of this approach really show in company share prices and, and Bioventics has done extremely well this year, uh, as has a company called West Pharma, which is listed in the US. It's up 25% in the year to date. And what does it, what does it do? They make um, like injectables, needles and things, uh, seals, which are crucial for ventilators, diagnostics things. It's also the package. They also have relationships with the packaging side of things, which is another really interesting part of the coronavirus story. Like We're talking a lot more now about antivirals, antibacterial stuff. We can't just be shipping packages all over the place unless they're really properly clean. And West Pharma have a have a partnership with a packaging company, a plastics company, which are making antiviral polymers. So there's all sorts of interesting opportunities which aren't necessarily the direct drug development, but they could be beneficiaries of of this shift in healthcare. Definitely sounds like a, a way to play this trend without some of the pitfalls usually attached to, uh, to drug development. Mm, yeah, and the pitfalls are that they are parcel fail situations, and it's so hard. And that original article that seven steps to healthy profits really showed that it's almost impossible and the seven steps included things like looking at the management and and checking their track record of developing medicines and making sure they're in an interesting area which actually has demand whether they've got commercialization agreements in place and even though all of those things had been considered in that original article in 2018 not many of the companies the actual drug development companies we picked 
are still operating as they were then because they've had drug failures and they just can't continue. Yeah, it's almost like a VC approach you have to take to, uh, to investing in the, in the drug development and discovery themselves. Definitely. But that does not say that the healthcare market should be off limits because it is a very interesting market, and especially at the moment. And yet one person who's been tapping into this trend recently is Phil Oakley. Let's hear what he has to say. And now welcoming back to the podcast after a couple of weeks off, Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm all right, thanks, John. How are you? Not too bad. You're looking very tanned. Two weeks in the garden, I take it. Yeah, riding bikes and lovely sitting in the garden. Yeah, it was good. Excellent. Um, so we've been talking about healthcare on the rest of this podcast. I mean, it's not your uh, your sort of favoured sector, but you, you've got a few bits and bobs that you uh, you look at in this space. What catches your eye in the in the healthcare space, Phil? I think from a UK point of view, I've always, I mean, stepping aside from, you know, the sort of pharmaceutical side to making, you know, splitting that off. Smith and Nephew is one that I, I think is a a very interesting business. You know, with it, it has sort of three three main types of business. It's got the sort of the implants business in terms of knee replacement, um, that kind of thing. Then the wound management and then also things like sports, sports injuries and treatment there. A business that I quite like, um, but it's also a business that has gone through quite a lot of turmoil. It always seems to be, you know, slightly underachieving or maybe even more than slightly underachieving. You know, if you compare it to, say, like a US peer, uh, like um, Striker, for example, which is a similar type of business listed on the US on the US market. Um, and also we've had, you know, issues with chief executive I and mean, had a chief executive in there for not very long who seemed to want to, to be paid a lot of money and was told that he couldn't and he left. And also seemed to be a uh, someone who wanted to build the business by making acquisitions. And in, in my way, my way of sort of thinking is that his departure is probably not a bad thing. I think there's enough there's enough to go for in terms of you know getting this company going again, making it more efficient, getting the sales growth up just by you know fixing it, sorting the knitting out. Um, I often thought as well that if it doesn't, um, it's a business that you know whilst there's there's plenty of growth potential you know, supported by sort of long term demographics of increased healthcare spending, aging populations, that someone could come and take it out. What, you know, so it's a UK share that I, I feel quite quite positive. But it's, I mean, it's ta- as you say, it's taken a while to get going. What what new plans uh, are in place to, to help it get back on the growth trajectory that, that, it, that it really should be on, given the trends you've mentioned? I think it's just, just doing the day job better is really what it needs to do. It just doesn't seem to be exploiting. It's, it's, it, there's, it's an internal management type issue, really. They just haven't been able to take what they have out into out into the market and gain a big enough slice of what what's out there. I mean, they've got you know they've, they've been propped up by the sort of the hip and knee implants business um, for years. That that's where they kind of dominate on a sort of global market basis but they've just not just not got in there and, and really been been aggressive enough in in, in my opinion they've, they've looked for 
you know, for other things, you know, I mentioned the sort of acquisitions in the last year or few years as trying to trying to cover it up. I just I just think they just need a to put it politely, a bit of a kick at the backside. I think if they can do that, then the the growth rate can uh, can tick up a bit. And if you get that growth rate of of revenue to tick up a bit, then you know you're dealing with you're dealing with very sort of niche products where there isn't a huge amount of competition, and you've got some pricing power where you can make you know make good profits. I mean, they've taken a hit, a short term hit from COVID nineteen because obviously. Things like hip replacement operations, uh, non-essential, or, you know, non-time sensitive surgeries have been postponed. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it'll come back. Um, just, you know, this is an issue for so many businesses right now is that it will come back. The question is, when will it come back and how long will it take to get back to be as big as and bigger than it was before? And that's uh, and that's that's you know what we're all trying to we're all trying to deal with at the moment. I guess that goes back to the sort of whole big you know what's driving the market question that we've talked about quite a lot. Are you are you feeling more sanguine about where the market is after two weeks off, Phil, or are you uh, you still looking at it with with, with amazement? I actually do feel I, I feel quite calm about it. I think um, I feel calmer than I did, which is which is strange. You know, you look at what's going on in the world, not just with virus, the effects on the economy. You've got political tensions in America. You've got political tensions between the Americans and the Chinese. And, you know, lots of people have been, have lost their jobs. Uh, lots of people might lose their jobs, uh, particularly in the UK, when, you know, the government cannot keep on paying this very, very expensive furlough scheme for forever. There's a huge amount of uncertainty out there. But you then sort of take a step back from that and you sort of split out the stock market from the economy. And, you know, it's often said the stock market is not the economy. It's, you know, it's one of the most frequently cited things that we hear from from time to time and, and and it's true and i think if you look at you know you look at the the makeup of of the stock market and particularly the top end of the stock market in terms of the big companies what you've got there and what you've had building for many many years is and particularly and particularly in the american market but it applies generally to a lot of stock markets across the world, is you have a collection of businesses with a lot of, almost verging on monopoly power, um, a huge amount of dominance within, within their, their industries, not only to, in terms of what they sell, but also in terms of what they buy. And I'm talking about particularly buying um, is things like wages, labour. You know, the more concentrated businesses become, the fewer competitors there are, the fewer buyers there are of workers. So there are fewer. So actually, this is one of the reasons why wage growth for, for decades, I think, has been has been so poor. And we've had a, an environment that's been going on for a long time where 
companies have got more and more powerful in their selling activities and in their sort of buying activities that you've seen profit margins go up a lot. You've seen growth, whilst it hasn't been very strong, tick away okay. You know, that the companies look very profitable with growth and then you throw in the sort of the magic, the magic powder of virtually, you know, no interest rate on any other investment. And hey, presto, you have, um, you know, you have a very, very attractive mix, especially when you seem to have um, the Federal Reserve in America that basically seems that its, its mandate is to underwrite Wall Street, which is what it's been doing probably for the last 25 years since since Alan Greenspan. And whilst that's great, great in the short term for stock markets, and it sort of feeds into this, there is no alternative that we've been jabbering on about for a long time now. It does raise it does raise issues, particularly, um, particularly in terms of things like social inequality, income inequality, wealth inequality, you know, the danger, the danger with this is that whilst you know the short term the markets are being propped up, um, it looks like it dangerously looks like something that is rigged for for the privileged few, and that is not um, that's probably not a very helpful backdrop in my opinion. But everyone can access the American market. Um, you know, it's been technology, I think, that's, that's really driven that. You mentioned, you know, the, these, these companies that are verging on monopoly power, many tech companies there. The, the other big sector that's been driving the, 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 the rally is healthcare. Uh, you've mentioned Smith and Nephew. Um, I, you were telling me earlier that you, you actually have exposure to healthcare through, um, in your own SIP, uh, not the fantasy SIP, um, through a collective vehicle. Explain what that is and what you think it is behind that. Well, I'm, you know, of the view that healthcare, whatever whatever happens really for the, for the economy, that healthcare is going to be something that is very well supported by by demographics, by you know population trends, aging populations, developing economies um, for the foreseeable for the foreseeable future. I think it's going to um, you know going to be very supportive for the for the for the companies that are in that in that market. Having some exposure to that, it's probably no bad thing. How have you got about that? Also, hasten to add, this is not a tip, but um, I have bought the uh, iShares S&P 500 Healthcare ETF. The sort of stock code is or is IHCU is how you would find it. And that is a selection of, I think, 50, 50 60 Healthcare companies um, in the in the US in the US market in the S and P five hundred, and it's actually some of the some of the issues with these ETFs, these sector ETFs that that um, iShares have developed. I think it's a very positive development, um, allowing you to sort of pick and choose which parts of the market you want to be invested in, rather than just buying the whole lot. The problem with some of them. Um, is that they can be very, very concentrated in one or two names. And, you know, for example, the, the technology ETF is, you know, about 40% of that is in Microsoft and Apple. And, you know, the consumer discretionary ETF has about 30% in Amazon. This, this healthcare ETF is actually 
quite well distributed. Um, I mean, Johnson & Johnson is the biggest, just over 10%. And then you have United Healthcare, sorry, United Health at seven, Pfizer, just under six, Merck, Abbott Laboratories, AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb. These big, big players. And yeah, it, I, I've taken the view that I like, you know, the, the sector long term. Um, I actually like the structure of this this fund and it's cheap. Um, you know, you can buy this for 0.15%, 15 bits, no stamp duty to pay. It's a cheap, maybe not the, you know, I know there are you know, investment trusts out there. I think, um, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think John Rosier has, um, is it some, is it some like the World Worldwide, Healthcare Trust? Worldwide Healthcare Trust. And I think he's got Biotech Growth Trust in there as well. Yeah, so you can buy, you know, you buy the investment trusts um, on this. But this just seemed to me as a quite a nice, simple, cheap way to gain access to this market. I mean, it's fair to say as well that, you know, in terms of healthcare, uh, the US is probably the place to be. As an alternative, uh, you know, one could purchase something, you know, to say a single a single company investment, AstraZeneca, which is now the biggest company in the FTSE 100. Why would you not do that rather than going for for an ETF? I think just just for the simple simple reason of um, of diversification. You know, why own? I mean, I mean, AstraZeneca has been a fantastic fantastic investment, um, and you know, probably will continue, you know, looks to be set fair for, to continue to do pretty well. But no, I just, I just think... Not in any of your portfolios, though. No, no, because I'll, I'll be frank that, you know, I, I've, I've, just, I've not dug deep into this. You know, I, I'm just, I, I've very much looked at this from a sort of top-down, very simplistic view. Um, I can't, you know, I, I can't say that I have taken the time to understand the dynamics and the products and the patents and the drug pipeline that every one of these stocks has. And I can't honestly say that I, that I totally un- understand it. I mean, they're complicated. The, 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 the drug development process and you know, the, the patent story is very, very complicated. It's very complicated. Um, but, you know, as a theme... You know, I think there's no there's no doubt that there is a powerful theme here. I mean, we go on. You know, like you know, I mentioned a few uh, a few minutes ago about you know the sort of market power, monopoly power. I mean, these you know, in some ways, it's not a good thing. You know, it's actually a bad thing, but it it is a it is a fact of life. And um, you know, these companies, if you look at what's been you know driving the market, these companies with market power. Um, you know the healthcare sector is right up there, um, and you know whether that changes if we get a change of president um, in America, that's that's possible. Well, you, you'd imagine there's you know regulatory risks hanging over the healthcare sector. It's hanging over the tech sector. Yeah, a, a Democrat president might well go after them. Yeah, there were there were yes. always concerns about drug pricing. That that's a never-ending saga. Always concerns about the dominance of tech. Um, I guess that's a big risk to consider. 
Definitely. I mean, if you wanted to write a real sort of, or just put together a real bear market thesis, for, particularly for the American stock market, you take this view. You take this view about how there are lots of big monopolistic, monopolistic or oligopolistic market structures out there in tech, healthcare, you know, the two obvious ones, but, you know, across so many different industries that this is actually part of the problem with inequality and, but also explains, you know, why the stock market has been so successful. Um, but I think that, you know, to counter that, you know, this is, this is why, you know, the tech industry, the healthcare industry spend millions every year on lobbyists, and it's whether it's whether the politicians are brave enough to to stand up to them and and take them on, and you know a more left wing um, government, uh, particularly you know if you take the sort of scenario that you could have you could have a you know a democratic president and both houses of Congress. Um, in democratic control, that would be a platform to really go to town on this. And certainly, you know, if, if Bernie Sanders was the was the president, you would worry about this a lot. And you know, if you assume that Joe Biden will be the democratic candidate, will he will he be tempted to uh, to, to to nick some of Bernie's Bernie's policies and and go for it? I don't know. No. Probably not. Probably not is my gut feeling because it's a lot easier to talk about these kinds of things than than get out and do them. Equally, equally, it seems that that um, that all governments around the world are, are very much dependent at the moment upon both the tech and healthcare industries, and possibly in combination to solve a lot of the problems that that we're facing right now with COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah, you know they, they, that's absolutely right. Um, which which suggests that you know the boat is not going to be rocked, but it but it you know that that has if you, if we're talking about about risks and we're you know we're looking at we're looking at investments and looking at you know, rightly looking at not just the opportunities but also the risk, then you know it's like. You know, it's like walking walking through the woods where there's some unexploded mines from the you know the first or the second world war. We have to tread quite carefully, and you know, one you know, you, there's always the risk that that you know that, that something that something bad might happen, and and I think you need to be need to be aware of that and um, guard against guard against any complacency. Absolutely. But um, for the in the meantime, healthcare looks like a good trend to uh, to be on board. It's not going away anytime soon. Thanks, Phil. That's okay. So let's bring Harriet back in now because obviously there are lots of opportunities in the coronavirus environment to talk about pharmaceuticals. But there's also obviously a whole big world of healthcare beyond coronavirus, which is also really interesting. 
Harriet, one of the things that you've looked at a lot is sort of almost futuristic opportunities in healthcare, which have been accelerated by coronavirus. And you've had a really, really interesting interview with Nina Decker, who's a senior research analyst at index company Robo Global, and she's talking a lot about telehealth. Just before we listen to that interview, can you just explain what telehealth actually is? Sure. So in a nutshell, telehealth, telehealth involves using technology to allow healthcare professionals, whether that's doctors, scientists, nurses, to monitor patients' health remotely. So that can encompass all sorts of things. It, it could entail using sensors to monitor the levels of oxygen in people's blood remotely. It could just be a telephone checkup, but it's essentially virtual healthcare. That's the overarching theme of it. Awesome. Let's, let's have a listen to what Nina had to say about the market. Nina, thank you very much for taking the time to catch up all the way from New York. Thank you for having me. First of all, could you explain in a nutshell what the inspiration was behind RoboGlobal's healthcare index and what the core drivers are that have led RoboGlobal to focus so much on healthcare technology? Sure. And let me just give you a little bit of background. About seven years ago, the market was demanding uh, a way, a thematic strategy, if you will, to invest in robotics, automation, and AI. And so RoboGlobal was created uh, to essentially provide an investment strategy um, to enable uh, investors to capture all the value of the disruption taking place in robotics, automation, and AI. And, uh, And so that strategy encompasses several different sectors, including healthcare, And what we found uh, over this time is that there was a lot of disruption happening in healthcare technology alone, and it warranted its own strategy. So last June, we launched the Healthcare Technology and Innovation Index, which is comprised of 85 of what we believe to be the most disruptive companies that are changing the course of healthcare. And so this is now providing a way for investors to be able to capture the value of all the changes happening in the healthcare landscape. Okay, that, that's really interesting. Thanks. When we've previously spoken, and sorry to quote you back at yourself, you've said that there will come a day when people talk about life before telemedicine in the same way that people were talking about life before the internet. What do you mean by telemedicine and, and telehealth more broadly? And how would you say that trend is being accelerated by the coronavirus pandemic? Sure. Maybe I'll just take a step backwards. When we look at our investment strategy, we look across nine different subsectors that we believe represent all the disruption that I just discussed. And amongst them, one of the subsectors that we focus on is telehealth. And within that, uh, we focus on virtual care, remote patient monitoring, as you mentioned, telemedicine. And so um, the world saw a massive increase in telemedicine utilization during the pandemic due to stay-at-home orders. And um, in fact, we ran our own survey and we, we, saw, we asked people, have you ever used telemedicine? And, uh, and if so, when? And what we found is that in the, um, the March-April timeframe, over 51% of our respondents said that they have tried telemedicine at least once. This is a, a, a respondent base of over 1,000 consumers um, across the U.S., and so um, we asked them, when, when did you use it for the first time? And the vast majority of them used it for the first time in this March-April timeframe. And that they more than tripled the number of first-time users prior to the, uh, to the pandemic. So, 
So uh, the, essentially, the stay-at-home orders and the, the need to talk to a doctor but not come in person to do it has cast a spotlight on this technology that's actually been around for a long time. And so uh, what we're seeing is that now that people have tried it, they and uh, the, the number of first-time users have, have entered the industry, if you will, the likelihood to use it again is also very high. So not only is there a step up in terms of adoption, but we see this being a new, uh, a new baseline, if you will, from which this industry is going to continue to grow for years to come. And are there any particular telehealth companies that you would highlight? Definitely. So uh, we actually have two in our index that are, uh, I would say, there's two pure play telemedicine companies that are um, that have seen tremendous growth over the last quarter. Um, Teladoc, for example, is one of them. They're based in the United States, as well as Ping An is another company. Ping An had over 285 million registered users last year, in fact. So, so uh, these companies have already been global market leaders in telemedicine care, and they've already laid the infrastructure, making it possible to very quickly for new users to uh, to be able to use the system during the pandemic. Beyond telemedicine, we have other telehealth companies that are involved with things like remote patient monitoring. For example, um, there is a company called Lavango that provides a, uh, a device to people with chronic conditions. And they have also seen a tremendous escalation in new user volume uh, over the last couple quarters, um, particularly because Lavango's flagship product focuses on diabetes. And what we learned during the pandemic is that people with diabetes who get COVID-19 uh, over half of them wind up in the hospital, and very tragically, one in 10 of them die. So uh, so the need to monitor diabetes remotely has never been more important than, uh, than now. And, uh, and, and even beyond the pandemic, now that people know that this remote monitoring capability exists, and they've tried it, and they've used it for the first time, we believe that they're very likely to continue to use it moving forward. That's really, really interesting. And I, I suppose you, you've, you've said that, of course, beyond telehealth and beyond telemedicine, there are other themes and trends that the index is following. Um, what are one or two of the other sort of more interesting, more exciting, longer term trends in healthcare that might be developing at a faster rate because of the pandemic? And which companies would you specifically highlight within those that you think are, are most exciting, for want of a better word? Sure. Uh, there's actually a couple. Uh, we have a, uh, another subsector in our index precision medicine. And so we've been following this area very close as people um, have more and more data about uh, their genetic makeup. Um, science research development is able to develop therapies that are more tailored to an individual with the hopes of having better outcomes. Regeneron, for example, um, they've gotten a lot of attention in the last couple months due to uh, mm-hmm. the pandemic, but uh, Regeneron was able to develop, use its monoclonal antibody technology in the past to help develop a therapy for Ebola. And um, they, the, the trials did not continue to advance because um, Ebola largely subsided. However, it has had a resurgence um, recently. So, um, but they, in record time, were able to develop a treatment for Ebola to start human trials within nine months, which is 
record-breaking in and of itself. Now, what we see with that, though, is Regeneron's ability to scale. They use the very similar uh, technology to develop this monoclonal antibody therapy to develop a COVID-19 treatment cocktail in five months. So we highlight this because what it shows us is not just how they can treat one disease, but how they can get better, smarter, and faster of developing treatments for other diseases in the future. And so, uh, because people believe that this is unlikely to be the last uh, large new virus and there could be another pandemic. And so the, the faster uh, that we can get at research and development and developing new therapies and bringing them to market, um, the better for the long term. Um, so beyond the pandemic, uh, Regeneron actually also announced um, interesting, very positive phase two trial data on a therapy that they're working on called Libtio. This is in partnership with uh, another company, Sanofi. But the results show 46% of the patients who took this, uh, they had substantial tumor shrinkage. These are patients who are suffering from um, the deadliest non-melanoma skin cancer. So, uh, so when we look beyond the pandemic, there are diseases, diabetes, we already talked about, cancer, that aren't just going to go away on their own. And so um, we're, we're still in very early days in terms of innovation. And it's, it's just very exciting to see a lot of these technologies that are not only being accelerated now during the pandemic, but also um, have a massive runway for growth for the future. Another one, Moderna, that's gotten a lot of attention during the pandemic, uh, is working on a technology called mRNA, messenger RNA. This is essentially like if you think about a computer, you buy a new computer and you want to help protect it from um, viruses, you could download antivirus software. Uh, that's essentially what mRNA does. Um, and so there is not yet any commercialized therapy for mRNA on the market, but there's a couple of companies involved. Uh, Moderna happens to be one of them. And we believe that they are uh, very well positioned um, for the future because they are working on, um, in addition to over 20 different mRNA therapies, when the outbreak first happened for COVID-19, within 42 days, Moderna was able to develop a vaccine and begin in human trials. This is another record for in terms of uh, development and, 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 and research for therapies. Last week, they kicked off phase two of the clinical trial for the coronavirus vaccine, and they're dosing it right now in 600 patients. So super interesting for the coronavirus, but if this works, this is a huge milestone for mRNA therapy, period, because as I mentioned, there isn't really a, a developed drug for this yet for, for any mRNA. And Moderna has over 20 different mRNA therapies currently under clinical trial. They actually also just announced a partnership with the National Institute of Health in the U.S. to work on an HIV vaccine. There is still to date no vaccine for HIV, and yet 1.8 million people per year get infected with it. Mm. That's all really, really interesting. And I suppose one of the things you've touched on there is that this pandemic, while all these different companies and institutions are working together, really throws up opportunities for partnerships to form, which could then be useful further down the line for all sorts of other research and development programs for other viruses and diseases. 
I mean, it does, it seems likely now that it, another pandemic could happen, you know, as scary as that thought is. So it's great that these unions are coming into, into place now. That's probably almost all we had time for. But a final question was really around how the index is diversified. I mean, you've talked about the different trends that you're following. Is there a particularly high exposure towards any specific area of healthcare technology or any specific geography? And is that reflective of where most of the innovation is happening? We strongly believe that we recommend investors are looking across a broad, diversified group of companies. We think the best strategy is to invest in lots of great companies rather than trying to pick just a small number of the perfect companies. And so with that focus in mind, we diversify our healthcare strategy across not just telehealth and precision medicine, but robotics, data analytics, process automation. We, we mentioned Moderna. How on earth is Moderna going to get this vaccine if it's developed into uh, people around the world? Well, they partnered with a Swiss company called Lanza to, uh, to aut- further automate and develop capabilities to, uh, to, to develop things at mass scales. And uh, Levon, Lanza is another uh, member of the H-Tech Index. But the, the key here is diversification. And, uh, and that, is, that is our key focus. Great. Nina, thank you so much for taking the time to speak. That was really interesting. Thanks again for having me. Harry, that was such an interesting interview. Thanks for, thanks for doing that. One of the things that I really struck me about what she said was talking a lot about how these technologies already existed why do you think they weren't being used before? Why do you think coronavirus has accelerated the use of them so much? Well, I think it feels like first and foremost, coronavirus has really shone a, shone a spotlight on how incredibly useful these technologies are, if want a better word. You know, they're facilitating people being able to stay at home, stay safe while keeping in touch with their doctors. Um, I think particularly things like chronic illnesses, knowing that you don't have to go in each time you, whereas normally you might have to go in for appointments very regularly if you can be monitored remotely it's just a much better system it's far more efficient as well um, I think possibly there have been concerns about commercializing these technologies before but this has given companies that produce them an opportunity to say hey no this is the future this is how this is what healthcare is going to look like after the pandemic I mean it's funny you say that Harry I was, was actually speaking to the um, the chairman of a local NHS trust this week and um, obviously for, for, for the reasons of the pandemic, they haven't been having patients, outpatients coming back to the hospital. And he now says, actually, two thirds of those outpatients probably never need to come back to hospital again. Um, it really potentially revolutionises the way the NHS is run. He, he said they're basically going to be left with huge numbers of empty buildings as well. I mean, it's, it's uh, coronavirus has accelerated that trend and I don't think they're going back. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, it also raises the question of what's going to happen to all those hospital buildings. But um I, I think I can totally imagine that being the case and people probably feel safer at home. It, it takes a huge amount of time. It's less efficient coming in and out of hospital um, to be monitored. And if the right technology is there, doctors probably can achieve more in a day by and see more patients in a day um, by using technology, using telecommunications. So, yeah, it seems realistic. Well, this term is they've been trying to change working practices for 15 years to do things like this and just couldn't get get things changed. Um, and now it's all it's all just happened. I think it all like it kind of comes back as well to the purpose of doing it. And before maybe these things weren't being put into place because it was sort of you could chug along and there wasn't any like massive desire to have things change. And now it's a life or death situation and people don't want to be coming into hospitals, not just for efficiencies, but because 
it's dangerous in those hospitals and it gives more of a reason to be using this these sort of new world developments than uh, than there was before which I mean, it was still a very valid reason like efficiencies are important but maybe health is is more of a pressing reason to actually make changes I suppose the other thing that's interesting is that I think telehealth can also extend to communications between doctors between healthcare professionals as well as between patients and you know whereas it might take days to be referred um, from one doctor to another and to see lots of different people about one condition or one operation, it could all become a lot more streamlined if you can do it remotely, if everything can be done over a computer. Even in advance of an operation, you might be able to have some of the preparation, your sort of initial conversations with the surgeon done over the internet. It is really interesting. And there are some companies in the UK that are helping to facilitate that those communications. EMIS, for example. Medica, helping with with uh, scanning and, and reading um, patient scans and stuff like that. Absolutely. And I think Medica's seen quite a bit of disruption just because of the low numbers of patients going into A&E, especially in April. But actually, in the longer run, the fact that they can offer those scanning services remotely and they have consultants on standby just waiting to check them is is going to be a really helpful um, practice in the long run. Yeah, it's great. It's all it's all really interesting. And yeah, lots of lots of investment opportunities as well. Thanks very much, Harriet. Really good to speak to you. The investment. And finally, we've been joined by Mary McDougall to have a chat about investing in healthcare via via funds, which is, can be quite a sensible way of of getting access to a very interesting market. Mary, what are the benefits in investing in healthcare in a healthcare fund? Hi, Megan. Um, well, if there's one sector that's going to emerge from coronavirus in stronger shape, it's healthcare, as I'm sure you've already discussed. Um, Coronavirus is likely to change the public image and political attitudes to spending on healthcare. And by investing in a fund, you can mitigate stock-specific risk and you also have the benefit of having an expert in the field to do the stock picking for you if you pick an active fund. Um, And they've had very attractive long-term performance records. So Worldwide Healthcare Trust, which is um, one of the biggest uh, healthcare funds available to retail investors, has an annualised return of 15.9% 15.9% over the past 25 years, making it the best performing investment trust um, of the ones that have been around for that long. Wow. That's an interesting point as well about the um, having uh, an expert in the field, because obviously healthcare is, it's a niche area. It's There's loads of jargon, there's loads of specialist knowledge. Um, and yeah, having having an expert that can sort of pick away at, at, at things, it can be helpful. But then in healthcare, you do still have the problem of the fact that no one knows for sure if drugs are going to fail or they're going to succeed. So, so actually having, as well as the the expert knowledge, having a a, a pool, having a having the your money diversified slightly across lots of different companies is really useful as well. And the funds can obviously help with that too. What um, yeah. What are the what are your options if for investing in healthcare via funds? Um, well, you can either go for an actively managed fund or you can go for a passive fund. Um, but I'll come on to those later. So, from the active funds, you can go for an open ended fund or an investment trust. Um, and open ended funds are attractive um, as there are lots of them, and you don't have to contend with discounts and premiums, um, which you have with investment trusts, which can be volatile. But investment trusts have tended to perform slightly better um, over the longer term. And this is for a couple of reasons. They can use gearing. Um, Typically, they might use up to about 10%, which can be a boost to performance. Um, 
it can also make them more risky um, as it can amplify losses, but it can also boost performance. Um, and it's also easier for them to invest in unquoted stocks. Um, and of the seven in the AIC sector, they all have small allocations to unquoted stocks. And this can help them access early stage growth and mm. also help their return. That's interesting because that's something that we are very good at in the UK, that early stage development out of universities. We've got great academics here and there are a lot of interesting things going on in the early stages. We're just not fantastic at commercialising those things. So actually having having access to the the development that's going on right at the early stage could be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's also... Um, the ETFs that I mentioned earlier yeah, is the, yeah, is the other way. Yeah, because that's really interesting, that the the growth in, of them in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, there's been a, a real proliferation. Um, I think they're particularly attractive because they're so much cheaper. So you'll typically pay about 40 basis points for an ETF um, versus 1% plus for an actively managed fund. Um, but in defence of the active funds, I had a look at the performance of indices over the last 10 years. So the MSCI World Healthcare Index has returned 316% in the last 10 years. Um, And of some of the main, some of the largest healthcare funds, the Worldwide Healthcare Trust has returned 509% and Polar Capital Healthcare Opportunities has returned 408%. So still the active management has proven to give you some advantage yeah well i suppose that reads into the fact that the healthcare industry has got quite a lot of junk in it as well as some of the interesting stuff um that's making yeah. money there's a lot of really speculative things going on in healthcare which it, it's yeah they're, they're just never gonna gonna get anywhere so yeah i suppose actively mon- managed funds do help you sidestep those slightly more risky things are there any areas of innovation which are especially exciting, which fund managers in particular are getting most excited about? Yeah, I think um, biotechnology is a subsector. Um, most of the best performing funds seem to be overweight that area. And there are specialist biotech funds that have done particularly well recently. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what biotech is, it's an area that focuses on novel drug development um, and clinical research using biological processes. Um, to treat diseases. Uh, Gene therapy helps repair damaged cells or immunotherapies that turn bodies' natural defences against a disease. Um, To give you an example of a company in this area, it'd be Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which makes treatments for patients with cystic fibrosis and is in the process of launching a drug which analysts say is groundbreaking and will probably be the biggest biotech drug this year. Um, Lots of biotech companies are also working on coronavirus treatments, um, which have been very, very volatile and sensitive to the news flow. Mm. Um, but managers I've spoken to are not chasing um, companies trying to develop treatments for coronavirus because there's not much commercial incentive, as there'll be huge pressure to keep prices as low as possible yeah yeah that's um, i mean that's something that we talked about earlier but that is it it's a really interesting point with <laughs> with these companies which are doing massive things in coronavirus yeah they're not actually necessarily going to make money but yeah by biologics by um biotech drugs are they're such an interesting area of medicine and there's something that has haven't really been accelerating to quite the commercial extent as they could have done but now coronavirus seems to have accelerated that 
Um, yeah, and, and what people have, have said is um, the biotech industry has been quite commonly criticised for having, dry, having high drug prices. Mm. Um, so managers are seeing this as an opportunity for the industry to improve its public image mm. and demonstrate its value to society, and they expect sort of spillover um, effects from that. That's interesting. Another another area which has been hot for, uh, for for healthcare is China, and obviously the picture in China has changed quite a lot because of what's happened with coronavirus. Uh, it, it's something that we actually wrote about as a magazine a few years ago that the the push in China for modernising the the healthcare industry. Are there any funds that are looking are still looking very positively at China from a healthcare perspective? Uh, yes. So. The ones that have access to China um, are increasing their exposure to that area. I think there are a number of tailwinds in China. One's rising incomes and, uh, rising incomes and a large ageing population um, who will be, be prepared to spend more on their health. The second is that the Chinese FDA have tightened their approval standards to eliminate substandard products. And also the Hong Kong Stock Exchange recently relaxed its listing requirements so that biotech companies without revenue can go public, increasing the financing options for Chinese biotech um, and other healthcare pharmaceuticals companies. Mm, That's really interesting. Do you think there may be some concerns now, obviously, what's happened in China? It is a healthcare story which has come out of China, which is affecting all our lives at the moment. Do you think there may be some concerns about the continued positivity of of healthcare in China? Um, Well, I think from managers that I've spoken to, they say the central government's quite committed to supporting the healthcare sector. um, And it's sort of the... Sino-US trade tensions could be seen as a headwind, but for for biotech companies in China, they're mainly looking at the domestic market, so they're not likely to be too affected by that. Yeah. An example of one um, vaccine company that listed last year is Cancino Biologics, and it's developing a coronavirus vaccine, and its stock is up over 400% since it listed in March wow. last year. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Cantino has, yeah, it's obviously making progress with its vaccines, but yeah, that's a, that's an extraordinary share price rise. <laughs> um, in terms of the, the bigger picture then and, and looking at investing in healthcare, obviously it is a very hot topic at the moment. It's capturing a lot of headlines, but there is still the, there is a risky element to it. How much would you say, how much of your portfolio should be in healthcare if you're interested in getting into the market? Yeah, well, first of all, you should um, consider the fact that a lot of the indices have quite a high exposure to healthcare anyway. So um, the FTSE all share in the S&P 500 will each have about 15% exposure to healthcare. So if you're invested in a tracker, you're likely to have to have some exposure anyway. And some active funds have uh, overweight healthcare. So Scottish Mortgage, as an example, has 6.3% invested in Illumina, which is a pioneer in DNA sequencing, um, along with almost 17% in healthcare overall. But to answer your question, if you want to invest in a specialist healthcare fund, you probably want to make sure you don't have more than about 5% of your overall wealth because it is a volatile sector. Okay, well, that's uh, good to know. Always uh, always best to be cautious with <laughs> this sort of industry. 
Well, thanks very much, Mary. Really good to speak to you. Great, thank you. We have run out of time, I'm afraid, but before we leave you, let me just talk to you through what else we have in this week's magazine. As well as being back on the podcast, Phil is back in the magazine too and looking at another great American business in his education column. That business is Cash and Carry Group Costco and Phil explains why its low profit margins are counterintuitively a source of its strength. And in the same section, we're continuing with our new big picture series. Mark Robinson is seeing what we can learn from the often tumultuous history of the airline industry. There's all the usual comment from Chris Dillo, Simon Thompson, Mr. Bearble and Michael Taylor. Our usual tips and ideas and lots more ugly updates in the results of news section, including several shares hit particularly badly by the current upheaval in air travel. Sticking to the travel theme, we're continuing our run through of getting Britain back to work, looking at the railway industry. And we've had a look at the latest news from the housing market uh, and the largest monthly house price fall in a decade and what that means. But the biggest and ugliest story in the news section is the ongoing troubles in Hong Kong and what that could mean for Asia-focused lender HSBC. And finally, there is our lead story this week, which continues our new future series, this time looking at how COVID may be a catalyst for tackling climate change, um, which companies and funds are leading the way to build the world back better there. Green Pioneers, the companies solving the world's environmental crisis. Thanks to all our guests, Harriet, Nina, Phil and Mary. And thanks, as always, to my superb co-host, Megan. Pick up the magazine in all good news agents or get online and subscribe. See you later.